kids, you are dismissed for Children's Church, so you can leave at this time. Before we uh, get into the message, just a quick announcement. Um, Nancy Chaika's father, Chester, uh, was just rushed to the hospital in very serious condition, and she asks that we would keep him before the Lord. Let's take a moment before the sermon and lift him up to Christ. Lord, we would ask that you would be with Chester during this time, Lord, and pray that you would give the doctors wisdom and uh, that he would be healed and treated um, well by the hospital, Lord, and we place this before you in Jesus' name, amen. You know, the Lord's table is such an important part of worship and obedience for the child of God. Now here in Mark chapter 14, verses 12 through 26, we're going to find Mark's account of that first Lord's table. And we're going to see that this was a, a time of worship, uh, a time of reflection, a time that symbolized what Jesus would soon do when he went to the cross. When we observe the Lord's table, we look back to the cross. But for Jesus and his disciples there in that upper room, they were looking forward to the cross. But the Lord's table has always been about what Jesus did and sacrifice for us. So as we reflect on something that we as a church body observe, usually the first Sunday of each month, but it doesn't have to be the first Sunday, especially when there's a really bad snowstorm, we can hold it off for a week. When we observe this, we are worshiping Christ, but we're also being obedient to something that our Lord set up for us to remember his death. Now, as we come to this passage, we find that the Lord's Supper took place around Passover. In fact, when we come to the 12th verse, we find Mark starting to talk about preparation for Passover. But what we see is something very special about this Passover. The Passover where the Lord's table was instituted was the last Passover that would take place before the fulfillment of the Passover would come in Christ Jesus, being the sacrificial lamb who would give his life on the cross for our sin. And that's what we want to see. Passover represents the sacrifice of the Lamb of God. Notice the 12th verse. On the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, when it was customary to sacrifice the Passover lamb, Jesus asked his disciples, where do you want us to go and make preparations for you to eat the Passover? So Jesus was being asked by his disciples where they were to go for this Passover. Unknown to them, Jesus knew where everything would take place. They were worried about where it might be, but Jesus knew. And more important than that, we see that this was a thing that was instituted very close, an event that was instituted very close to something else that had a great deal of meaning, the Passover. When we think about the Passover, we think about a lot of imagery. We know that, first of all, there was a Passover lamb that was a part of the Passover meal. It was sacrificed, and it was done at the temple, and it was a time for people to reflect on the awfulness of sin and what it takes, blood, to overcome sin. It was a time for them to reflect on this sacrificial lamb. And you know, that imagery was fulfilled in Jesus Christ. In fact, the Apostle Paul said this in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7. Get rid of the old yeast that you may be a new batch without yeast as you really are. Now listen, for Christ, our Passover lamb, 
has been sacrificed. Jesus is the fulfillment of the Passover. For all of those centuries, as Israel observed this sacrifice of a lamb, it was a picture of the Lamb of God who would come in the person of Jesus Christ. And so what we find here, as Jesus is making preparation through the disciples, Jesus is doing so with full knowledge that in a matter of hours, he would fulfill what the Passover had so long anticipated. Jesus, the Passover lamb, would be sacrificed for all of us. There were other elements in the Passover. The unleavened bread. This symbolized for the Israelites, haste in departing from Egypt. But it also reminded them of redemption, that God would redeem them from slavery to the Egyptians who had held them captive for hundreds of years. The leavened bread was a reminder that God would deliver them quickly. And so it's a reminder to us as well of the body of Jesus Christ that redeems us, the body of Jesus Christ that gives us release from slavery to sin. And we're thankful as we partake of the Lord's table, we partake of bread that reminds us of that deliverance. Something else, there was bitter herbs. Now the bitter herbs that are taken during the Passover are reminders of the bitterness of their slavery. And you know, you can't appreciate the Lord's table until you stop and ponder the fact that we were all enslaved to sin. And it's a bitter thing. It's a horrible thing. But thanks be to God, the Lamb of God delivers us from the bitterness of our slavery to sin. So all of these things were being observed. It was a traditional Passover but it had so much more meaning this time because of the fulfillment that would be found in Jesus Christ. For the disciples, I suspect that this was viewed as just another Passover. They didn't have a grasp of what Jesus had been teaching them concerning his death and his sacrifice on the cross. They soon would. But as they were preparing for this Passover, they probably prepared for it just like they had prepared for many before throughout the course of their life. But for Jesus, there was the full knowledge that this Passover is different. As he shared in the symbols of the Passover, no doubt he thought about what the fulfillment would mean for him in a matter of hours. And he did this because of his love for us, to deliver us from sin, just as God had delivered Israel from Egypt. But then the text goes on. In verses 13 through 16, we find that Mark shares with us some of the preparations for this Passover. And he talks about the place of the meal and how it was predetermined by the Lord. Notice the 13th verse says this, and he sent two of his disciples telling them, go into the city and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you, follow him. Now, when we look at this, we say, well, you know, there are a lot of people getting water, so how is this a sign? How would this person be distinguished from all the others? Here's the point. You see, in the culture of Jesus' time, Men normally didn't go to get water. Normally, it was women who went to get water, 
And so a man going to get it would be unusual. Jesus was telling the disciples that they could look for this and follow him. And then as the text goes on, it says, say to the owner of the house he enters, the teacher asks, where is my room and where I may eat the Passover with my disciples. So when Jesus was giving his disciples instruction, he was telling them to follow this person once he went into the house, talk to the owner of the house, and mention that there was need by the master, the rabbi, the teacher. Now again, when we look at this, when many consider it, they say, oh, Jesus must have made prearrangements. Perhaps he was concerned about the religious elite trying to do him in. We saw earlier in the passage, the, the wrong part of the passage that Bert read this morning about them plotting against Jesus. Good thing you read that, Bert, because we referenced back to it. But really, what, what I think was going on, it was a demonstration of Jesus' supernatural knowledge. Listen, we don't have to always find natural explanations for supernatural things. What Jesus did was supernatural, and Mark wants us to grasp that. He wants us to understand that Jesus had full knowledge because he's more than a man. He is the God-man, God who took on human flesh to be sacrificed for us. And then in verse 15, it says, he will show you a large upper room furnished and ready. Make preparations for us there. When Jesus was talking to his disciples about what they could expect, he was telling them about an upper room. Now, those of us who are familiar with the Christian faith, we hear a lot of references to the upper room. But I wonder if we really understand what it is. In many of the houses in Jerusalem, the lower floor had rooms, and there was a substructure under there to hold up the floor joists of a larger upper room. And the upper room was a place where gatherings would take place. The lower part of the house would be the gathering place for the family. That's where the family lived and had their bedrooms and ate and all of that. But when there was a feast or a special occasion, there was an upper room that people would go to. And this is what Jesus had made arrangements for so that he and his disciples could go into this large gathering place and they could have Passover with one another. So his instructions to his disciples were, were very clear. Go and make preparations for us there. In addition to the furnishings of the room, there needed to be a lamb, there needed to be bread, there needed to be wine, there needed to be the bitter herbs. Many things had to be gathered into place in order to celebrate the Passover. And by the way, this wasn't unusual. The place of sacrifice for Passover had to be the temple. And so a lot of people would flock to Jerusalem in order to observe Passover, and Jerusalem's population would swell by about four or five times what it normally was. So people offering rooms for people that were there on their spiritual pilgrimage to worship God through the Passover, it was very, very common. And so Jesus was making these arrangements with the disciples, but he was showing so much more. And look at verse 16. The disciples left, went into the city, and found things just as Jesus had told them, so they prepared the Passover. You know, the disciples could have looked at what Jesus said and asked a lot of questions, right? Well, how do we know which man carrying the jar? Or how do we know that 
We're following him to the right house. Maybe he's just making a stop there. They could have questioned everything that Jesus instructed them to do, but what did they do? They obediently followed, and as a result, they received the blessing of seeing what Jesus said come to fruition. You know, I think about that for myself and for others. Sometimes when God tells us to do something, we don't have to understand every single minute detail of what he's asking us to do. There's a place where trust comes in. There's a place where we give God the benefit of the doubt and to where we say, God, if you have instructed me to do this, if you said to do this, I trust you, I'll be obedient. And when we're obedient, God's work gets done. The disciples perhaps had learned that after three years with the Lord Jesus Christ to just do what he asks. To no longer bicker. To no longer say, well, don't you think it would be better if... They learned not to do that. They listened. And as a result of listening, they saw God work and bless. But then we come to a sad part of the passage. We find prophecy that one of the twelve would betray Jesus fulfilled here in this text. When we come to the 17th verse, it says, When evening came, Jesus arrived with the twelve, and while they were there reclining at the table eating, he said, I tell you the truth, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. Now, when Jesus shares this with the disciples, and by the way, this isn't a very accurate picture of what this would have looked like. They would have been reclining. In other words, there would have been a short table and they would have been reclining on the floor and they would lay next to each other as they ate and it was a very close time of fellowship. It was a time of trust. You see, when you went to a meal and you reclined at the table with somebody, it meant you trusted them. If you're at a chair, it's easy to slide out the chair and get up and run or do whatever you need to do. But if you're reclining on the floor, a little more effort is required, right? And in the ancient Near East, sharing a meal together was something that was unique. It was something that, that really meant something. If we say, I'm going out to grab a bite to eat with somebody, it doesn't necessarily mean anything in our culture, right? The old let's do lunch really doesn't mean that much to us. But in this culture, sharing a meal meant so much more. It meant trust. It meant community. It meant oneness. So for Jesus to be sharing the meal and during the course of the meal to say, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me, that was an amazing statement for the disciples. When they heard that, no doubt they were shocked. They wondered how that could be. How could one in their midst somehow turn on the Lord Jesus Christ? How could they demonstrate such treachery in the place of trust? Jesus' words in that 17th verse, I tell you the truth, one of you will betray me. Imagine if you were one of those disciples in the upper room. What would be your response? The response that the disciples had is very understandable in the 19th verse. They were saddened. Now, the word saddened in the original language means more than just sort of feeling bad about something. It's a word that means to feel pain. Have you ever heard something so unsettling, so hard to hear that it caused pain in your heart? 
That's what the disciples were experiencing when Jesus said this. Think about this. We all look back on the disciples and we say, well, of course it was Judas. I mean, I've seen Michelangelo's picture of the Lord's table, and Judas looks very guilty, you know? We, we sort of base everything on that. That's not theology. The, the disciples would have interacted with Judas for three years. He would have been one of the 12. They would have built bonds and relationships. He had infiltrated the Lord's disciples, and as far as the other disciples were concerned, he was one of them. So people didn't naturally gravitate to Judas and say, yeah, we know who he's talking about. Instead, they were struck with pain that one of their own would turn on them and turn on the Lord Jesus Christ. It hurt them. And you know, as, as I think about this, I think about what it does to the body of Christ when somebody turns away from following Christ. It hurts us. In my 33 years of ministry, I've seen some that have turned away from the Lord that I just didn't see coming. And it hurts. And you feel that pain. So I know what Mark's talking about here when he says they were saddened. But then look at the next response. Each one of the disciples came up to him, probably on the side, and said, it's not me, is it? It's not I. Really, that's a better way of translating it in the original language rather than surely not I. It's a question that expects no for an answer. So imagine this, each one of the disciples slipping up to Jesus saying, I'm not the one that's going to betray you. You know, the sad irony is this. To one degree or another, all of the disciples turned away from the Lord. When he was arrested, they scattered. None of them to the degree that Judas did, but all of them to some degree abandoned the Lord. But each of them asked, each of them pain-struck by the possibility, again, that one of them would do it, and, and surely it wouldn't be me. And that would include Judas. Can you imagine the treachery of Judas to go up to the Lord and say, it's not me, is it? When all along he knew it was him. That shows his treachery in an even greater way, and what we find in the book of Matthew is a record of Judas actually doing this. In Matthew 26, 25, it says, Then Judas, the one who would betray him, said, Surely not I, Rabbi. And then look at what Matthew says. Judas, or Jesus answered, Yes, it is you. Imagine how Judas must have felt when the Lord said to him, I know what you're doing. And yet he continued to show grace and mercy and offer him an opportunity to repent of what he would do. And that brings us to the next part of the passage, the pronouncement of woe on the one who would betray. In verse 20, it says this, It is one of the twelve, he replied, one who dips bread into the bowl with me. 
Now again, when we look at this, we're not thinking about the cultural things that are going on. To share a bowl with somebody, again, a picture of community and trust. And so Jesus is saying, yes, it's one of you, and it's one that's sharing in this meal, that's dipping his bread in the bowl with me. It's one of you. But then in verse 21, look at what Jesus says. The Son of Man will go just as it has been written about him. You know what Jesus was saying to Judas and all of the others? God has a plan that's unfolding for me as the Son of Man. And it's going to unfold just as God wills it, just as God has written in the Old Testament in prophecy. All of this is coming to pass. But then he gives this warning. But woe to that man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. You know, when I first read this, I used to think in terms of Jesus saying this to Judas in sort of a scolding manner. But the more I reflect on it, the more I wonder if Jesus didn't say this in a compassionate tone. Knowing that the ongoing rejection that took place in Judas's heart would bring him to this final act of treachery and would demonstrate how hard-hearted he had become and how far from God he had allowed his rebellion to take him. What Jesus was warning Judas of was dire consequences for the lack of faith and commitment that brought him to the place of such sin. And you know, I think that's a warning to any who would consistently and continually reject Jesus. During Judas's life, he had heard the gospel. He had seen God with us. And yet, with all of the exposure to the truth, there was still that hardness of a heart that said, I will turn my back on Jesus and go my own independent way and do what I want to do. And as a result, as we all know, Judas is upheld as a man of treachery and a man of wickedness and evil recorded in the eternal word of God because of that insistence on a continual rejection. It is a serious thing to reject the living God. And so Jesus' record that we find here in the book of Mark was not only a warning to Judas, but it's a warning to all who would turn away from the Lord Jesus Christ and say, I will go my own independent way and rebel against who Jesus is and what he stands for. But then we come to the last part of the passage. The last part of the passage shows us the Lord's table. And you know what we find in this part of the text is Mark recounting what Jesus did when he shared with the disciples that first Lord's table. It was a time when Jesus 
talked about the provision for our sin and how it's to be memorialized in the Lord's table. Look at what the text goes on to say. Verse 22, while they were eating, Jesus took bread, gave thanks, and broke it, and gave it to his disciples saying, take it, this is my body. Very simple statement that Jesus makes to his disciples about the symbolism of the bread. Now, there are some who take this text, and because Jesus says, this is my body, they say, oh, that means that the bread turns into the body of Christ. It's called transubstantiation. Let me share this with you. That is not taught in Scripture. What's fascinating is this. In the Aramaic, which Jesus would have spoken, there wasn't a word for is. Jesus would have really said, this, my body. Secondarily, this was done during the Passover. When we look at the Passover, we see that various elements of the Passover symbolize spiritual truths. Jesus, in instituting the Lord's table, also intended for the Lord's table to symbolize the spiritual truth of his crucifixion. One other consideration. When Jesus did this with the bread, Jesus was there. Why would he become the bread when his presence is in their midst? The presence of Jesus Christ would not require the bread to become the body of Christ, literally his own body. It's a symbol. It's something that represents what Jesus did for us when he went to the cross. When we think about the bread and we think about it symbolizing the body of Christ, we think about something that is broken into pieces, something that goes in to those who share in partaking of the bread, something that symbolizes what happened with Christ. When Christ died on the cross, his body was broken for you and for me. And when we trust Christ as our Savior, he becomes a part of us. He indwells us. That is the symbolism of the Lord's table. And that shares the community, the aspect that all of the disciples did this together, and later there was instruction to the church that the church share in this time together. Communion isn't to be taken in your home apart from the church body or other believers. It's something that we do together because it symbolizes our unity, our community, our oneness. At this time, we're going to partake of the bread, so I'd like to ask the elders to stand with me. And in memory of what Christ said in this passage, we're going to share in communion this morning. I want you to think about the symbolism of communion that we just discussed. If you've trusted Christ as your personal Savior, we invite you to join with us to remember that body that was broken for us. Father, we pray that you would receive the glory and the honor that you so richly deserve for sending your Son into this world. And as we remember his body, which was for us, given that we might see redemption, deliverance from sin, and have a right relationship with you because of the forgiveness that it brings through faith, we pray, Lord, that this morning communion will just have that very special meaning that you meant it to have. 
as we reflect on that sacrifice. In Jesus' name. And at first Lord's table, the Lord said, this my body for you. Let us eat together. I'm going to ask the elders to please be seated for just a moment. 
Let's talk also about the cup. Verse 23 goes on to say, While they were eating, Jesus took bread, gave thanks, and broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take this, eat it, this is my body. And then verse 23, Then he took the cup, he gave thanks, and offered it to them, and they all drank from it. And listen to what Jesus said. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. When Jesus was talking about the cup, symbolizing the blood of the covenant, what did he mean? When we look in the Old Testament, when something was consecrated to God, it was consecrated with blood. In fact, the writer of Hebrews tells us about this when he talks about the following in Hebrews chapter 9, the dedication of the tabernacle. And it says this, when Moses had proclaimed every commandment of the law to all the people, he took the blood of calves together with water, scarlet wool, and hyssop, and sprinkled the scroll and all the people. And he said, this is the blood of the covenant which God has commanded you to keep. And in the same way, he sprinkled the blood, both of the tabernacle and everything used in its ceremonies. In fact, the law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood. And listen to this. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Now, the writer of Hebrews talks about how the blood of these animals dedicated something to God. But Jesus and his blood is superior And that's the argument of the writer of Hebrews, the superiority of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. The sacrifice of Jesus Christ sets us apart unto God. It makes us his very own. So when Jesus is talking about the blood of the covenant, which will be poured out for many, he's sharing with the disciples and he's sharing with us the power of the blood of his sacrifice. The fact that it would set us apart unto God and make us God's own possession, but that it's not just for one or two, it's for many. In fact, it's for any who will turn to God and trust Christ as their personal Savior. The blood of Jesus Christ brings forgiveness. And that's what Jesus wants us to understand as we share in the Lord's table, in the cup. It's a reminder to us of our salvation, that blood that secures for us forgiveness from God and makes us one of his people. It brings us into that covenant relationship with God when we place our personal faith in Jesus and what he did. Jesus goes on to say this, verse 25, I tell you the truth, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it anew in the kingdom of God. Drinking of the fruit of the vine, Jesus was promising a couple of things about the wine, not only symbolizing his blood that was shed on the cross, but also looking forward to the establishment of his kingdom. In fact, Paul says very much the same thing in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. The Lord's table not only looks back on the cross, but it looks forward to Christ's return. So as you partake of the cup, think of the imagery. The color of the cup 
reminds us of blood. The way grape drink is made reminds us of the crushing of grapes, just as Christ's body was crushed for us and his blood shed for us. It's an image of what he's done. So as you partake of the cup, remember that. would like to ask the elders to stand with me once again. And let's unite our hearts in prayer. Father, how thankful we are for the cup and its symbolism. We thank you that Jesus shed his blood for us. That we might find forgiveness in a right relationship with you. That we might become yours, Lord. Bought by the precious blood of Jesus Christ. The blood of the covenant. And how we thank you for the forgiveness that is ours in Christ Jesus. We praise you for this in his precious name. Amen.
memory of the blood of the covenant that Jesus gave for the many, let us drink together. Now normally at the conclusion of our observance of the Lord's table, we immediately take an offering for our missionaries. That's still going to happen a little bit later. But first, the text tells us in this passage that after they had taken the communion, they sang a hymn and then went to the Mount of Olives. Now, we won't be going to the Mount of Olives, but at this point we will sing a hymn. 